Hi, and welcome to the first entry into the Addicts Anonymous podcast here. We have the pleasure today of speaking with Jim R. Please say hi for the folks, Jim. Hello, everyone. And I am Dandy. And yes, I am Dandy. But we're going to start today's episode with Jim's story of addiction and probably end it with how he's operating in today's society, to be honest. So, do you have anything you want to say before we get started there, Jim? No, just looking forward to the interview. All right. Well, let's get right into it. So, where where did your life and addiction start? Well, I'd have to say, if I really, really think about it, it started back in my childhood, as far as back as I can remember. So, I remember some stuff when I was, like, around 8, 9, 10 years old. So, at that time, because I was alone a lot, I would eat a lot of cookies. Um, and I guess, really look back at it, that was something, like, I would, it was my crutch. I was going through a lot of personal problems. But I'd say that's where it started. Okay. And did you, so did you end up trying to get help for this around that time? Or was it just kind of something you pushed to the wayside? Well, I was so young, I I didn't know to ask for help. You know what I mean? I was old, and that's a pretty young age. Like I said, that was mainly my eating thing. But getting high is getting high, whether you're eating, smoking, betting. True that. True that. And a lot of people don't make that correlation, so I'm glad you brought that up so early because an addiction is an addiction is an addiction and it doesn't really discriminate it doesn't matter how old you are doesn't matter where you're from so what what did your childhood look like like as a whole it wasn't great so i have a lot of it blacked out um i do remember my dad's pretty abusive with me um verbally and physically um so that was something that you know stayed with me my whole life but as an overall picture of my childhood mom left when i was eight i was left with an angry father um me and my two sisters um growing up was just rough like i remember my dad would rather go to i remember what they called them at the time pwp dancers which was parents without partners but i look back and i say to myself what my dad was doing he was going looking for women and I was walking, you know, a few miles to CCD, which may not have been that far of a walk. Actually, it was. It was far enough, especially for an eight or nine-year-old. Yeah. Um, that could be scary. Um, and then eventually we moved, and things were still rough. Eventually, I been, um, was around 17 years old, finally had had enough. My dad was, you know, he was for the most part, done abusing me physically because now I had been playing football and hockey. I was kind of more in shape, and I told him I would hit back, so I kind of stopped him in his tracks. And my mom said I could move in with her. My sister had already done this. She moved in with my mom first to get away from my father. And then she moved out because she was uh, married very early, very young. And she moved with her then-husband to the South. I believe it was Kentucky because he was in the military. And eventually I moved in. And it was kind of awkward. I had never lived with my mom before. So kind of being in the basement, which was going to be my room with 
my furniture on the way from the old house. They, they got it there, you know, but it was just weird. Um, just felt awkward. I mean, my mom loved me. She did everything to make me feel at home, but at very first, I didn't feel at home. But eventually, I became that was my home. Even though I only lived there for maybe four or five years, I still felt that's my home. You know what I mean? When I think of home, I don't think of anywhere I live with my father. I think of home as mom's house. Um, from there, now, how far do you want me to go? My, what's my child? Well, do you want see, me to go to high you, school? or? You said a couple different things that I just want to touch on real quick. You were, okay. even despite the abuse, okay, you were playing what did you say, hockey, you were playing football, so you were a quote-unquote normal kid despite how you were abused growing up. I was trying my hardest to be. I never felt like a normal kid. That okay. is something I even still to this day battle with. Um, yeah, I, I, would, I was trying my hardest to be a normal kid. That's the best way to say it. Okay, but you were at least putting on the facade. And yeah, absolutely. And then I would go home to uh, my dad. The uh, best way to describe him is he was an emotional terrorist. Okay. He was very... I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off at all. I, I was just saying, you okay, okay. okay. No, no, you didn't cut me off. <laughs> so emotionally abusive, physically abusive. And how did that translate into when you started going out on your own? How was, so obviously it was a huge change, just moving in with your mom and being there. Your dad, like you said, was an emotional terrorist. How did life change for you at that point? Well, just leading up to that, I was in high school, so high school is okay. Um, because I, originally when I was a little younger, I was an overweight kid. because um, I always had an eating problem. I ate to get high. And, um, but from there I lost weight in high school and I finally fit in a little more because I was quote unquote more normal. I was playing JV football, stuff like that. But it was still, when I went home, a terrible atmosphere and moving in with my mom, you're asking how that affected me. That saved my life, you know, because during high school, I was getting in a lot of trouble, a lot of fights, and I look back now and I go, my father, that's what he taught me. With the abuse, I was just now passing it on. I was taught, oh, you're mad, you hit. Now I'm mad, I hit someone. And then I would be told I'm a bad kid, including my father, and it was just a cycle. I would get hit more, and then I want to hit someone else even more. And it was just a, a terrible cycle. And during that time, my addiction did kind of kick in. Um, as far as the food, and then I started smoking cigarettes, I started smoking weed, I started drinking at a pretty young age during high school, which was about 14, 15 years old, um, and I drank to fit in, and I also drank to try to suppress the feelings and emotions from my childhood, because it became a bit too much to bear. Even at that young age, it was very hard to get a grip on everything that had happened. I blacked most of it out. So I think me drinking was a way to try and really suppress those feelings and emotions without even realizing it. But the abuse continued until I was about 19. And then I was introduced to cocaine. 
I still remember it was a guy that I worked with when I worked at an assisted living home for the elderly. He was a uh, he worked in the back with me as a dishwasher. Um, I was 19 and I started doing coke. Thought I was cool. I was all about oh I'm gonna be like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, um, which I was, but it just wasn't cool. I look back and I was like you know wasn't, that wasn't the greatest of times. Um, and then I also had tried other stuff. Around that time, I had tried mushrooms, I had tried acid, um, and that's the stuff I did while I was in high school, and I drank, like I said, every now and then. I wasn't really a big drinker. I didn't like the taste. Yeah. Um, you tell me as far as you want me to go. After high school, did you want to ask me any questions now, or? So, so far, you've started smoking. You've started drinking. You've dabbled in psychedelics. I mean, when did, I guess, when did you realize these things were actually a problem for you? Oh, that wasn't for a long time. Long time? Right, okay. Oh, no. Because right now, if we're talking about me around high school, or even right after high school at 19, 20, 19 or 20 years old, um, I didn't figure that out for a long time. I, I didn't realize I had a problem for a long time. Okay, so what did your day-to-day life look like then? When I graduated high school? Yeah. My day-to-day life was, at the time, I was actually selling weed. So I had, you know, I thought I had the life because at the time, I thought it was a lot of money, but I would make like four or $500 a week cash. And I thought that was living the life of luxury. And I didn't have to do anything but take the risk like once, twice a week, or once a week, once every two weeks, I should say, of going to get like a pound or so of weed and then distributing it to my friends who would then sell the baggies. Um, so that was my daily life after high school. And I was smoking a ton of weed because I always had weed around, obviously, being that I sold so much of it. And the drinking still hadn't kicked in yet. So my day-to-day life, for the next couple of years after high school, it was pretty good because, like I said, I didn't have to do anything, but I eventually was arrested, and it was by the Monmouth County Narcotics Task Force. They had been following me and stuff, and they had all this evidence against me for, like, months of investigation. Oh, wow. So your oh, first yeah. time, was that your first time getting arrested? Um, I think so. I th- No, I think I got arrested once, and... <laughs> This was a assault with a deadly weapon. It was the first time I was ever arrested. There was a knife involved, and I scraped the kid. Uh, I didn't stab it, but I scraped the kid's arm pretty good. But, so, limited police involvement up until you got hit up by a task force, though? Oh, yeah, limited, very limited. That was a, that was a big shock for me, because they came to my house with the dogs. They ripped apart my bedroom, just like you see in the TV shows. They ripped everything out of the drawers, left it on the floor. It was a bad. It was a terrible feeling when you're watching them do this and you're in handcuffs. Awful feeling. Yeah, and people think that type of stuff is fake. Like, in my personal life, I I can attest to the fact that that it's not fake. They really show up with those dogs and stuff. It's kind of crazy. Oh yeah, and they gave me the option: you either sign the search warrant, which you're going to open the door to your house, or we're going to kick in your door. So yeah. obviously. Because it was my mom's house. Oh wow! 
So after you get arrested, where does it go from there? Well, I got very lucky. Very lucky because there's something called PTI, pretrial intervention, which is basically as it sounds. They intervene and they basically say, we're going to put you on probation. And if you mess up, there's really, you just go right back to jail or mm-hmm. right to jail. I hadn't been in jail except for one day. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that. Like, I, I was on pretrial at one point myself. So <laughs> I, right. I, I understand that. And you definitely just described it pretty well. <laughs> yeah, it's your one get out of jail free part. Don't mess it up. And that's what I did for um, the way I handled it. And then afterwards, speaking of handling it, I was an idiot. And I was still smoking weed. Oh, and wow. I got fucked twice. And thank God when I went back to court that they didn't send me to jail. They just gave me more probation. So I got lucky with that. And they told me, don't screw it up this time or you're going to jail. So at this point, you've already gone through the loop you got put on your pre-trial and you kind of screwed up there kept popping for things so then they put you on probation did did you actually continue to smoke at that point too or did you just switch to something that wasn't going to show up i switched to alcohol um because it wasn't going to show up as long as i didn't drink that day and at that time it was just alcohol because like i said it was that and food. Like, whenever, if, when, if I quit everything that I uh, would consider addictions, I gain a lot of weight. I start eating. There's a reason they call it, you know, comfort food and eating your feelings, because you are technically eating your feelings. And foods, depending on what type of food it is, they can be comforting. You might get that sugar rush for just a little bit, but it, it technically comes. That's true. That's super true. I, I've... Even in my life, I I haven't ever thought that I have, like, an overeating disorder or anything like that. But I have found myself, even in times of, like, crisis, reaching out for certain foods that I know are going to leave my stomach feeling a certain way because it's a comforting experience. Yep. It absolutely could be. But that's... So, so far, you... Finally made your exodus from the abuse that you were suffering in childhood. You moved in with your mom. You were doing pretty decent. Obviously, you were doing some bad things along the way. Now, what does life look like on probation and once you start drinking and eating more? The way it looks basically is I would, at the time, I had just gotten my first job as a car salesman, so I would drink during the day. I remember we had a deal on Fridays, on payday with my boss, Eric. If I had sold a car by noon, I could go out drinking. He didn't care. I could just come back to the dealership and not take any customers so I'd be drunk, but he didn't care. I already sold the car that day. Yeah. So I drank periodically like that. Actually, it did become like a nightly thing. And I do remember ordering things that might have been, you know, for two people. And I would just eat it all by myself. And I would load up, maybe gain 30 pounds. You know, I gained 30 pounds very easily. That seems to be my go-to weight once I am depressed and eating my feelings or what the result is. Um, 
but I would just eat a huge dinner when I got home from work, which you look back and it's like the same thing as kind of smoking weed or having a drink to relax when you get home. And I would do with some shots. And it's till this day, I still don't like the taste of alcohol, but I would just hold my breath and take a few shots. Yeah. So I'd be a little buzzed from that, and I'd be nice and buzzed from the food, and I'd just sit on my couch being a, a fat guy. So when you weren't actively using and drinking, you still had the food that was there every time. And that was, I mean... If I'm understanding correctly, the food was probably your longest running addiction. Am I right? Technically, yeah, because it started when I was eight years old. I would t- totally eat my feelings when I was eight years old. So, I mean, technically, that's um, something I've been fighting the longest. And, I mean, I feel it's important to point out right now, like, addiction is addiction. And if it's something that's causing your life harm, which overeating absolutely has huge, huge health risks along with it. I mean, you put yourself at like a predisposition for diabetes, depending on what you're overeating, of course. Otherwise, it's going to be high cholesterol. It's going to be this, that, and the third. So overeating in most ways is just as dangerous as some of the drugs and alcohol that we ingest. Yeah, it could lead to death. It absolutely can lead to death in some cases. I mean, it's very severe cases, but people get diabetes, they lose a foot, they lose an arm, something happens. You know, people have heart attacks, obviously. Big thing, if you have high cholesterol, you're going to have a, a much more likely a chance of having a heart attack. So it's just like just like drugs. Like you said, it affects your life, it affects your health, and it's something that in the long run, if you do not change your ways, can kill you. That's true. And honestly, like, it seems like the eating would be harder to control than narcotics because narcotics are something that you actually have to seek out in a, in certain avenues, whereas food, food's everywhere. And the difference with food is you have to eat. Yes. Like, you have to eat if you want to be breathing and live tomorrow, you have to eat. That's true. Because if you don't ingest, you're not going to survive. Exactly. My addiction took many different disguises. You know, taken off from what you were saying before about my story, um, I really, around 19, 20 years old is when I discovered more stuff like cocaine. Um, I think I mentioned the mushrooms, the acid. But taking that into my closer to my mid-20s is when the painkillers came. And the painkillers were a big part of my life. I took at least one or two of those a night for, um, trying to think, possibly between seven and ten years. I know that's a kind of vague number, but it could be, let's call it eight years. I did nothing but painkillers every night. Yeah. So, at that time, I wasn't drinking. The funny part is, what made me start drinking heavily was I had actually crashed my car drunk. I was driving in Belmar, New Jersey, which is the Jersey Shore, so it's very busy in the summer, like very busy, and I was driving down the main strip like an, like an idiot, and I don't remember anything except waking up in my car with the airbag deployed, and I had crashed into two parked cars, and it, like I said, it was going fast enough, the airbags came out, and I remember waking up in jail, and that's when everything started because I lost my license. 
career, like I mentioned, I was a car salesman. So now I can't sell cars anymore. And I remember being on unemployment. This is during that recession back in around 2008. And they extended unemployment a lot. Yeah. And just sitting there depressed, drinking. I started drinking because of the DUI. And funny enough, I wasn't an alcoholic before that. It turned me into an alcoholic. And then for the next 10 years, I did nothing but drink. I mean, I, I did also take painkillers. I also did cocaine. I did all of that stuff I mentioned. I continue doing that plus drinking. Yeah. Um, so you were having a pretty, pretty rough cocktail around this time. Yeah, because no matter what, I was going to be drinking. So mm-hmm. if, like, oh, let's do Xanax, it's going to be, okay, but I'm still drinking. Let's do cocaine, okay, but I'm still going to be drinking. So I remember doing so much cocaine that I'd be shaking and get real worked up. And then I would do a few shots to bring my nerves down. Wow. Yeah, that was, I look back, that wasn't smart. And I also did Adderall and Klonopin. So I was prescribed the Klonopin. The Adderall I had to go out and buy, quote, unquote, illegally. Well, it's not quote, unquote, it is illegal. Yeah, no, I, I get what you mean, though. Like, if it was something you were given beforehand, like, then it, it's one of those things. I, I get it. I absolutely yeah. get it. Yeah, funny enough, I did abuse the living daylights out of Adderall for years, but eventually I stopped abusing it, and I actually took it like a doctor would prescribe you. Like, I, I would take maybe a 5 milligram in the morning, and if I really, really needed maybe the 20 milligram pill in the afternoon to get me going. But that's what a doctor would prescribe to you. And I, I have ADHD, so it actually did help towards the end. But I didn't abuse it. But um, I do remember any time I was sick, because I also had one time where I was hit in the face with a bottle, so I had to have a plastic surgery to pop my cheekbone back out. And I was then again prescribed painkillers. And oh. every time I got those, what I would do is I wouldn't take them during the day. I would suffer through the pain on purpose. And then so stash them. Yep, and then take uh-huh. them all. So I would have a few pills at night, mix it with a nice cocktail, and I would feel real good. Um, but then it's a straight shot for the next 10 years. It was in and out of depression, drinking, doing drugs. You know, I can't repeat enough how many different drugs I did, and there's probably some I'm forgetting. So that's usually how that goes. Yeah, because, you know, I remember one time we tried to cook up NyQuil for some reason and smoke that. I, I, I have no idea why. We called it crack quill. And I look back and say, you guys were, me and my friends were insane. We had ran out of Vicodin and stuff. We're like, what could we get high on? And there was just nothing there but that, so we tried that. We were pretty insane. That, I've never heard that one. Like, in my years of recovery and addiction, I've never heard of that one. So, well. Oh, yeah, we we t- we were willing to try anything. See, I've heard some pretty crazy things that addicts, like, addict lengths have gone to to get high. Okay. Um, first and foremost, one of the things I remember a lot from my childhood was the people that said you could uh, dry banana peels and get high that way by smoking banana peels. And then there was uh, the nutmeg and oregano. By the way, none of those things work. So don't, if you're listening to this, don't bother trying it. Trust me, I've tried it for you. It don't work. Um, but it's, it's ridiculously insane to me 
the length and depth we are willing to go to just feel different. I think one of the things is to actually use what you just said is we want to feel different because we already feel different. We feel different than other people. So now we just want to hide our emotions, hide that feeling. We do the drugs and we go take that drink because I think a lot of us already feel different. So it's funny you use the word different because we feel different and now we want to feel different uh, emotionally because we can't take feeling separate from society. Like we don't feel like everyone else. I feel a lot of us have that issue. Yep. We ingest or smoke. Like We take into our bodies some type of outside source to make us feel different when we already feel different and we're upset that we feel different we're trying to feel a different kind of different yeah it's and that's literally just saying that out loud it, it's insanity and that's what it all boils down to here we go so we as addicts do some pretty insane stuff and you had just said uh, the next part of your life was about the same thing for what you said about 10 years. Yeah. I, I chased the alcohol for about 10 years straight every single day. Okay. And how was that affecting your day to day? That was the actual problem is my day to day wasn't so affected at first. And it really never was because the deal is I'm a car salesman. So I, there's, there's just no chance to be drinking at work. Like, if I ever, I, I couldn't risk that. So I was smart in that regard. Um, but the way it affected me day to day was just every night, I was an idiot. Every night, I remember some places, I would get off work, go to the liquor store right there, take two shots right in the parking lot. I would open up the shot bottles, take the two shots. Um, I remember throwing the bottles right underneath my car, outside the car, and then driving home. Mind you, I only lived 20 minutes away. I, I look back on how insane that I was risking getting caught, pulled over, and losing my license while just being 20 minutes away from home. I can go home and get as hammered as I want. Yeah. So there were times there's a liquor store by me where I actually live. That is a mile and a half down the road. And sometimes I would stop there also on the way home and do the shop before I got home. And there's no reason for me to do that because I wasn't hiding it from anyone. I lived alone at the time. So it wasn't like I was hiding it from my wife when I got home and I couldn't do it at home. I was just, I wanted it sooner rather than later. I, I guess it was my reward. I had waited all day for it. And if I had a good day, I drank because I, I deserved it. And if I had a bad day, I drank to kind of hide the feelings. And if I had just an okay day, why, why not have a drink or so? I always had a reason to drink, always. And I, I hear that so many times in so many different addict stories, too. Like, it's a reward system. It's that instant gratification for whatever we're feeling. Whatever we're feeling, the answer is always use of some kind. Whether it be a drink, whether it be um, a pill, or even in the case of, like, if it had been for your overeating, if you had gorged yourself that day, you know, like, that was your reward for somewhat normal behavior. Yeah, I mean, every um, <clears throat> that's one of the big things that um, I guess some people should learn that when our brain gets affected the most or hijacked, quote-unquote, is our reward system. 
So that a lot of us remember going to just get whatever our substance was. On the way there, we felt the high. Once we actually got the stuff in our hands, we felt another type of high. So we were getting high before we even technically did the drug. Yeah, so because of the process. Exactly. The process eventually gets you high. Um, but you were asking about day-to-day life. That was it. That was one of the problems was I drank at night. I drank at home by myself. And I was a functioning alcoholic. I had a job. I did well. I paid my bills. I have a car. I'm actually, my sister had to help me get that car, but I do have a car right now. And I had a car back then. Um, that's the thing. I really just okay. didn't want, it didn't make me want to quit because there was, at the time, I didn't really have a reason to quit. Makes sense. So nothing really was changing to make you feel the need to alter any of the way you were going. So what changed? My daughter. I found out that I was going to be a father. Um, okay. One my ex-girlfriend would happen was I was trying to get her back. So I decided that I was going to go look at the detox. I wasn't sure if I was actually going to go at the time. I was just kind of, I, I pulled this before. I'm like, let me look, see, I'm looking into meetings and stuff to try to get everyone to get off my back. And so I invited her over. And next thing you know, we get into a fight I, because guess what? I was drinking. I decided that I'm going to invite her over tell her how much better I'm looking to get and I get drunk and I pop a couple Klonopin and I end up blacking out on my girlfriend, smashing her phone, yelling, screaming, scaring the shit out of her. This is what I was told. I mean, she said some pretty crazy things, but I also remember bits and pieces and I kind of had her cornered and she went running and I didn't chase after her. I just sat there and the police came and the police just got me. And the next morning when I wake up and I'm sober, I just start screaming to myself, what happened? How did this happen? What is going on? And from that point, I, I drank to maintain, because the guy at the rehab said to me, he goes, don't cold turkey it. We have to wait a few days till you get here, and we don't want you having a seizure or something. He goes, I'm not giving you an excuse to get hammered. But he said to try to maintain. And I did that. But I at that point, I... I knew I needed help because look what I just did to my ex-girlfriend at the time. You know, at the time she was my ex, she had recently left me. So that was my wake-up call. That is exactly what changed was my daughter. And that's, honestly, that's a lot of us in recovery. That's a solid reason to actually seek out the help. You know, it's, I know they state you, you can't get sober for anyone else, but I'll be damned if that's not one of the best driving factors to at least get you in the door you know exactly it may not make you change but it will motivate you to try to change exactly so you said you found a spot where'd you end up going it was the discovery institute in marlboro new jersey it was a great um they saved my life i remember i don't know if i read this somewhere or if somebody actually said it to me but Everyone, a lot of us there, we feel like we're bad people. And somebody said, or I read somewhere, I forget, that you're not a bad person. You're a sick person. So you should treat yourself as such. And that changed a lot for me. That really helped me get a grip on the fact that this is a real disease. It is something that affects us. Um, 
as the founder of AA, used a lot of his terminology was where it drives us to the point of insanity. Um, I even still kept that word in our 12 steps. The, the, the second step in my 12 steps is it came to believe that through discipline and hard work, we can restore ourselves to sanity. Because at the time when we're in the throes of addiction, we're acting insane. There's no other way to put it. That's factual. That is 100% factual. And you just kind of brought something up. And I, I would feel remiss if we actually just skimmed past it. So you went from uh, essentially a whole life of use to jumping into this detox. How did you feel leaving the detox center? Oh, that's a good question. I was scared. And to explain a little better, the reason was, so I went to detox March of 2020. So I was literally there as COVID was breaking out. Okay, so you literally jumped in like at the boiling point of when everything's popping off. Exactly. And once I saw people coming in, like the employees with masks, and once I saw that people, um, we were watching, we got to see the news around 3 o'clock every day. Yeah. And every day, these cases were going up, going up, going up. And I said to myself, I go, what if there's some type of quarantine and you're technically right now in a medical facility. What if they quarantine you here? I said, I'm like, so I went, and this was the first time I ever started doing this. I was taught by a guy named Mitch in there how to meditate. Um, we're not so much how to, but he motivated me to actually do it. And I meditated on it for a while, and I thought it was in my best interest to leave. But the problem was I actually didn't want it. I had made some good friendships. I had only been there about eight days. Um, and there were no meetings outside. So I was going up against literally all the odds. Also, my family was quarantined. Nobody wanted to go out. So I was literally all by myself, which is technically sitting in the room with my worst enemy, because that's me. Yeah. And I had no support system. And the Zoom meetings that I got onto, they really didn't help, because they very much felt like an in-person meeting. And the way I mean that was not in a good way. Everyone felt rigid. Nobody felt relaxed. Yeah. I couldn't explain it. It did not help me. Robotic in a way. Exactly. So I felt very much alone. So when I left rehab, I was scared to death. Keep in mind, for the first time in my life, I've got a daughter. So if I mess this up, I'm messing up big time. So I was scared to answer your question. Yeah. So, I mean, fear, it's such a... Uh, for, for lack of a better term, fear is such a fickle bitch. Like, it can either be one of the most driving factors you'll ever have in your life, or it can be one of the scariest and oppressive things you'll ever have in your life. But it sounds like you made the right choice. Well, I mean, I, I just was so worried about my family and stuff, but can I say that if I stayed longer, it might have helped a bit? With my recovery, absolutely. I can't lie about that. I probably would have tried to, um, I probably would have attended more meetings because we still had our in-person meetings in there and probably would have helped, but I was just nervous and it would, it wasn't that it's like, oh, I made the right decision. It's it, the way I describe it is I didn't make the wrong one. Makes sense. Um, because that was my biggest, mm -hmm. that was like the way I describe it. I don't know how, if that makes sense to anyone else. That's the way I would describe it. 
I mean, um, I I completely understand what you mean by that, though. Exactly. What it was not necessarily the best for me, but at the time, based on the information I had, it was the only decision I could make rationally. Fair enough. And I mean, that's such a intriguing set of events, and to to land yourself in detox to end up there right at the time that COVID's hitting, that in itself is insane. It's kind of crazy how the stars had to align for that to all happen. I mean, kudos to you, though. Like, it sounds like you made the decision just based on what you would feel safer doing. Which I don't blame you. If I was stuck in a medical facility when COVID's popping off, in my head, all that would be on repeat is I'm in a medical facility with people that have to pass by sick people to get to where I am. Exactly. I was stuck. It wasn't like I could hide from anyone. And if they quarantined you, who knows how long they would have kept it going. I mean, now looking back, we obviously know roughly how long they probably would have kept you guys quarantined for. But at the same token, that's an insane amount of time, especially for someone who's supposed to be doing this program for X amount of time, and then you go. But COVID kind of introduced a whole new monkey wrench in not just your recovery, but recovery as a whole. Like you already stated, Zoom meetings, super rigid, super awful. Like, when they're like that, I mean. Because there are some meetings out there that aren't like that. Not trying to knock those ones. But the ones where everyone feels robotic, those can... They can be such a deterrent to even make a meeting. Um, and at, you, you leave the detox, and here we are in corona shutdown. Yep. That's yep, I'm all, it's all alone. I remember that feeling of being all alone. And that's, that's a pretty wild spot to be. And after hearing, like, how this story's gone so far, obviously, first and foremost, how do you feel nowadays? Oh, I feel much better. Um, part of it is you know, what we're doing right now um, has a lot to do with my mental makeup right now. Um, but nowadays, I feel much better. I don't have cravings. I've been lucky. Um, I tell people there's really two kind of recovering addicts. And to give you a good example is Bill W., the guy who started, co-founder at Appbox Anonymous. Through his experience, he had his craving removed. He didn't have cravings anymore. But the other co-founder, Dr. Bob, he had cravings the rest of his life. He didn't drink. He had to fight those cravings. But I think I fall more closer to Dr. Oh, I'm sorry, Bill W., or somehow my cravings, they're gone. I don't have cravings for anything. And I'm hoping to stay that way. Nobody's perfect. Relapse could be in my future. It also cannot be in my future, possibly. Who knows? But I'm hoping the same thing for you, though. I'm hoping those cravings stay as far away as humanly possible. Um, yep. So. All right. Okay. And. There was something I did want to ask. Um, You mentioned right in the upfront of your story, um, the difficulty with your parents and things and how the the relationship dynamic changed when your mom left. You said you were nine, right? 
Eight, eight. Eight, okay. So, eight years old, mom leaves, and dad was definitely one for the physical side of punishment more than anything else. Am I right? Yeah, I think that was also mainly because I was the only boy. Okay. And I hear that a lot. So, you're, like, psychologically, you're probably right. Um, now, how did that shape where you went in life? Well, it definitely had a lot to do with a lot of trouble. I was the first kid to ever be suspended from my school when I was in fifth grade, and it was because I hit someone. So looking back, I was told my whole life by my dad, a lot of teachers, that I was just a bad kid. Looking back, I say, no, that was just something you learned at home. So it, it, it was a vicious cycle because the one thing I do remember about that day is, oddly enough, my dad didn't beat me up. He kind of just took me home after getting suspended and said, go go to your room. Like, that was really it. I was actually very relieved. I thought I was going to get my ass kicked. Um, but moving forward into high school and stuff, or even middle school, elementary school, I was always troubled. I was always, and a lot of it was fighting. If you said something to me, I wanted to fight. I don't know why. Well, actually, I do know why. Plus, like I said, it was things you learned at home. and Like a predisposition <laughs> to violence. Exactly. Exactly. If someone teaches you, oh, you're mad at something they're doing, so I'm going to hit them. So if someone makes me mad at something that they're doing and I don't like it, I'm going to hit them. It's just what you learn. Um, it's hard to break those habits. Yeah. So you were asking how it shaped my child, uh, shaped me, who I am. In my childhood, it made me troubled. And as I get older, it makes me stronger because I know now what not to do. So I'm not going to do these things to my children. So in a way, I absorbed all this pain for my daughter. So this way she never has to go through that. Amen. Amen. I dig that. So the way it shaped my life was just took me on a journey. Like the first time I needed to go get my bipolar medication, it was my anger once again that got the better of me. I threw a keyboard or something at a mechanic at the mechanic at the auto repair shop because he said something I didn't like. So I took his keyboard and tried to hit him with it. It was really bad. I went home and I was like, dude, like, you're insane. You need help. And then it was through, I remember at the time, my girlfriend's mother, she had a friend that went to go see a psychiatrist and she just gave me her name. And I still remember her. And I went to her and she was the first person that diagnosed me bipolar. And that's a theory that they're still out on, which is nature versus nurture. So my dad might have contributed to my bipolar. They're not 100% sure on that yet, but the, the, um, they're still doing their research. Yeah. But the way it shaped me was that. And it brought me to here. Now I'm talking to you. And I guess without all of that, this may have never happened. I may have never been an addict. I may have never had feelings to suppress. So I might have led a quote-unquote more normal life. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And The pleasure of talking to you. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about this type of stuff, too, because it takes a while once you're in recovery, of course. But once you actually enter recovery and you start doing this type of self-reflection, one of the things that you notice is exactly how certain aspects triggered roles that took off in your own life. So 
what was the biggest thing you would say that came from being abused as a kid? Like, what, what feeling sticks the most? Fear. Okay. How did you suppress your fear? Drinking and drugs. Okay. I, and I, by my false bravado, I would, like I said, I was always down for a fight, even though, no, I wouldn't call it false bravado, because at the end of the day, I still would have fought, but that's how I handled my fear was, I guess I wanted to beat you up before you had a chance to scare me. Maybe that was it. Sounds very illogical and insane, but that's exactly what we added to art. Yeah. It almost sounds to me like you wanted to hurt someone before they had the chance to hurt you. That's a great way of saying it. I completely, uh, I completely agree with that assessment. Like, and obviously, it's, I'm no medical professional. Like, I'll never claim to be. I'm just another addict who's had way too long to actually sit and decompress my feelings. You know, so I hope some of the things that I can say, some of the questions I can ask, can help someone get a better perspective on what they've gone through in life and not only realize, like, how it shaped what they became, but also kind of point out how it shaped where their strengths lie today. Today, you have one of the best conflict resolution techniques I've seen. You're always quick to actually listen to people, and you go the extra mile to make sure everyone feels comfortable and safe, especially in our group. Like, in Addicts Anonymous itself, you're the forefront of the conflict resolution, and I think, honestly, you should probably write some type of manuscript as to how to handle conflict resolution. I think it would help out a lot of people, man. And you know what's so funny? I have to mention this just in case anybody in my family or friends listen to this. They would, because I was such a troublemaker, I would get into so many fights, they would think I would be the last person to ever come to now for conflict resolution. But as I said before, without the experiences of my life where I have felt extreme anger and had different opinions from everybody and things like that, I, I learned how it feels to either be shot down and ignored, or I also know how it feels for someone to totally take your side and make the other person feel inferior. So it's either one or the other. Someone's going to feel inferior. And if I can come to some middle ground, based on just logic, just making things very simple, like if you said X, Y, Z, what do you mean by that? Um, I call it the I message. I feel this way when you do that. And it sounds so simple. But if you can take that approach and just kind of guide a conversation in that direction, it's really not as hard as it sounds. And it's also not as easy as I'm making it out to be. So I know it's not so easy, it's not so hard, but it could be done. Absolutely. And I I agree 100%. So one of the things that is huge, too, that you said just there is the I feel statements. Those are huge. In any group setting, using I feel kind of takes away the, uh, how did one of, one of my favorite counselors put it this way, okay? If you're going to state an opinion, if you just state the opinion, like, for example, if I was to come up to someone that's, you know, a hardcore New Yorker, born and bred, and I was like, hey, the Yankees have been playing like crap, that's probably going to start a fight. Just on site, it's going to start a fight. But if you're like, hey, you know, 
I noticed, and this is just how I feel, the Yankees aren't playing like they used to. It takes that fuse out of the explosive. Just those two words, I feel. Like, sure, they're still going to want to talk to you about it, but I don't think it's going to be with their fists at that point. Exactly. And disagreements are good because they might turn around and say to you, well, you know what, they're doing better than they were. Or maybe they turn around because you said politely and they go, yeah, I know, you're right. We've been talking about how they've been doing real not so well lately. You know what I mean? So <clears throat> you need some to find out to find out that a good middle ground, you just need to put it on the other person. You say to them, I feel this way when you say this. And you're putting it on them to now most likely respond in kind. Because most people respond the way you, you talk to them. Yeah. You get what you give. So if you give some bit of just neutrality, and you're just not taking one side or the other all too much, it's going to make a much better conversation. And you might learn something from someone. I agree with that. Conversations are what we need. Like, debates, arguments, things of that nature. Like, where debate can be great, it also sets up people to feel like they're not being heard or understood. Conversations is definitely how I feel most conflicts can come to a head and can come to the solid, even the agree-to-disagree aspect. Because I've had many, many things in my life that have ended with just, hey, you know what? I respect your opinion, but I'm going to agree to disagree on this one. But I absolutely understand where you're coming from now. Oh, yeah. Words are powerful because you can get the same. You could come across the same message or get or give the same message just using a different method. Words are very powerful. Absolutely. And it's true that so I remember, sadly, I remember it because of South Park, but there was a motivational speaker who used to say words are like bullets. Um, and what you got to do is take that's where I got the correlation to take the gunpowder out of a statement. If you take away the angst in the word and you actually put it into a just how you feel type of statement, then more people will feel less injured by them. Um, I can't remember the motivational speaker itself. Um, if I remember by the time this conversation is done, I'll try to circle back to it. But conversations need to happen to form any resolve in anything. And like, if you could talk to beginning of your life, you, what would that conversation look like for you? Oh, it'd be real real direct and brief, just relax, man, just relax, and I'd say it gets better, and that's very cliche, I have, I've seen the hashtag on Facebook, but it really does, it does get better, it may not be life-changing to the point where you never feel pain again, but without pain, there's no good, you need something to, you know, balance it out. True that, you know, one of my favorite artists, he says, so he kind of sticks to a shtick, so kind of bear with this. But he says you want to be very, very careful 
how hard and how long you try to outshine me because all you're doing is making my shadows thicker because light is always accompanied by the darkness. So on his side of things, he pretends to be this big, like, dark guru type thing. I, I just like the way he articulates. Like, I think some of the things he says have a lot of deeper meaning to them, and it leads me down a rabbit hole of, like, research and discovery type of thing. But he made a valid point with with just trying to be cocky, I guess is the best word to say it. But the, everything is about balance. You can't have light without dark. You can't have hate without love. And you won't know happiness unless you know sadness. Like I said before, words are a powerful thing. That's why in Addicts Anonymous, I try to teach people, or not, I don't want to say the word teach, but if anyone reaches out to me, I just say, patience, relax. Um, I give the same advice that I would give my younger self, just patience and relax. You got to, and also understanding. You got to be understanding that a lot of people are going through some bad stuff. You know, you're not the only one. Absolutely. Once you realize you're not the only one, that that really helps people. That's usually one of the biggest things when we get a newcomer is I finally feel like I'm not alone. I knew I wasn't the whole time, but I never actually got to get to a group. And it's a good feeling to know somebody gets that, you know? For sure. Like, it sounds like... How do I trying to think of the best wording for it while while i do that since i just completely had this episodic brain fart (laughs) why don't you explain the group a little bit for those who aren't familiar so addicts anonymous is a group very much well it's it's very close to the style of aa alcoholics anonymous and narcotics anonymous the main difference is we are catering to everyone. So you can be a drug addict, an alcoholic, a sex and lust addict, um, a gambler, an overeater. Because addiction just wears different disguises. At the end of the day, we're all fighting addiction. And we can all learn something from each other. Um, so I want the group to be open to anyone. and. This is something where, you know, I use a lot of cliches, but they're just absolutely true, where we try to provide a safe space for everyone to voice their opinions. Um, What I get as far as feedback, since I've started this, it's been a short amount of time, but I've spoken to a lot of people. And I noticed as well when I started going to meetings when I got out of rehab, everyone in the meetings seemed very rigid. They They didn't look comfortable. Another thing is you can tell when they spoke. They were trying to make sure they said the right things and not the wrong things. And I am so much more than just an alcoholic. So if for one, one reason I go to my AA meeting, which I'm trying to keep in mind, they want you to find a home group. But what if that day I am going to eat an entire pizza and then go to the bathroom, make myself throw up, and then so I can eat some dessert? Because... That may not sound like an addiction, but it is. I'm binge eating, just like people binge drink or they binge on their drugs. I'm binging with food. And guess what? That might be replacing the alcohol use. So technically, 
it ties into alcoholism, and therefore I should be able to talk about it. But a lot of people feel very restricted. Um, a lot of people, like I said, this is just the feedback I get. And the same thing with NA. They don't want to hear about certain aspects, obviously. And then you go to Overeaters Anonymous. They don't want to hear about certain aspects. So for someone like me who deals with drug addiction, um, eating disorder, and binge eating, and alcoholism, um, those are things that I don't want to have to go to three separate meetings every day. Like if I want to hit a meeting a day. Or if I, I don't want to go and just make it where I want to find a group that it's a close-knit group and I'm comfortable talking about any aspect of my life. And I said, they don't have that right now, or at least as far as I knew. So I created Addicts Anonymous. And that's why it says Addicts Anonymous, because it's specifically for all addicts. I've met all types since I started. You know, we do it virtual, but virtually I've met, you know, personally a few sex addicts, um, we have a gambler that usually regularly attends some meetings, um, which is pretty cool. Um, obviously not cool that she went through that, but it's pretty cool just to know that you have people from all walks of life that are attending your meetings. Yeah, so, it's, it's good to see the perspective in a way, like to see that all, like you said, all addictions wear different disguises, but at the end of it, it's the same core behaviors that we all exhibit. And these meetings that have been started in Addicts Anonymous. Honestly, they're they're so different than other meetings. And I think including all the addictions in one was just so brilliant. And we keep touching on the fact that it's the same behavior wearing a different disguise. And I mean, I'm so happy to have just a home group now. Like this has changed my recovery. Since before COVID, I hadn't even desired going to a meeting but this format has changed my recovery because now i'm active in helping other addicts which in turn's helping me because i'm getting so many different perspectives yeah i mean and i appreciate you saying that i um that was the goal is to make it where people um i kid around and say the greatest part of our structure is our lack of structure. Exactly. So what we do is, I realize that if you want to come in, you want to complain about your boss, that's okay. Because guess what the other choice is? You might go home and complain to Jim Beam and go get drunk. Or you might go home and complain to your needle, so to speak. And, you know, so there's, there's a bunch of other things that us as addicts can do. To go into a meeting is important. Um, so the lack of structure allows you to just feel free to literally talk about whatever you want, because there's obviously a reason you're talking to us. Exactly. So while we're on the topic real quick, Hey, let's, let's go over, I guess, for people who haven't been to a meeting, let's start with the beginning. What, what's it normally look like? I know we start with the preamble, but what should people that haven't been to one of our meetings know before they come to one? Well, depending on which one it is, because I'm starting to try a few new formats, just be ready to be open, because that's the most important thing. It's um, a, a lot of it is I think I've been just extremely lucky with the people I've met, the people that are in the group, and the people who do uh, their moderators and admins. Um, so that's one thing I always try to do is involve people. 
because that's like you said one of the greatest things you can do is be involved so yep. you give someone like a responsibility and i get really lucky with these people so the groups are hopefully going to start taking off you know because i think it's a good concept what we have it is and i mean right now we have our standing I, what we call our chillin' chat, which is essentially our open forum meeting. If you need to talk about something, that's that's the perfect meeting to jump in on, especially if you're looking to do like an introduction of yourself. The open forum chillin' chat, it's phenomenal. I mean, obviously we have like a couple standards we want people to follow. I mean, like the no crosstalk, right? That, that's one of the biggest ones. Yeah, we do. I'll. Or not no crosstalk. Let let me rephrase that. The um trying to let everyone share and not cut people off. <laughs> Sorry. Exactly. Because you want to make sure everyone has a voice and all that. Because some people might take a moment to actually think about what they're saying, and you might think they're done, and then all of a sudden you interject, and they really weren't done. So yeah, crosstalk we try to keep to a minimum. Um, but we just try. I, you'll notice once you come to one of our meetings. That a lot of people also they won't mind if you ask them questions. Like during their, that's one of the rules. You can't just ask someone a question if they haven't already shared something. Yes. But if I share an issue that I have, you can then ask me about that issue because you might have a solution to it that I didn't think of. So that's why our our forums are very open. Because I feel when you do the rigid, when it's just either a speaker meeting or uh, they're going to go over the big book meeting, those are great. You, I'm saying you absolutely need those but you need to do it in a way that everyone can be involved um and that's more than just asking different people to read from the book you know that's my group used to do can you read from this part and we'll share reading i get that but a lot of people get nervous for that and it's really just up to people how much or how little they want to get involved um yep but i feel in our forums people tend to see that we're just as it says we're chilling we're chatting. That's why I called it that. Yeah, and that's awesome. Like, and then we got. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I apologize. I was going to say because you're asking about different meetings. We're also going to do step meetings because an Addicts Anonymous does have 12 steps. Um, one of the things that does make us different is I know that it's not for everybody. So we also try to say, you know what? Like me personally, I've heard of something called Smart Recovery. It has some type of track record. I say. If that works for you, it works. It's your sobriety. So there are different options out there, but Addicts Anonymous has a 12-step that focuses more on your inner strength and having a little bit of discipline and willingness to just be a different person and work through the steps. And they are meant for religious and non-religious people. And what I mean by that is when you look at the steps, they don't have the word God anymore. They don't have the word higher power. It's all about, like I said, finding an inner strength and a reservoir of strength that you may not know was there. Encourage to do the right thing. And the one thing is God gave you free will. He gave you the ability to do that. Use your intelligence as well. So use the gifts that God gave you. Now, on the other hand, for people who may not be looking for the Judeo-Christian approach, they have a set of steps that does not mention God. So it works for both people and both types of um, groups of people, so to speak. And it's been going really well. So during the meeting, sometimes we'll go over some of the steps. Um, 
joking around. I say I'm like a grandpa. Well, every now and then I'll pull a couple quotes from the big book or some of the other literature that I think is great. Um, but our meetings are very relaxed. And yes. then there's a women's meeting where it's just straight women, and they kind of decide on their structure. They do sometimes where each person shares about themselves and all that stuff, or maybe one person kind of discloses they're having an issue, and they all kind of discuss that one issue. But it's just like any other meeting. I'm also trying to start a couples meeting. Yep. We just have to get the couples together. Um, but I think that's also a great concept because other people don't do these type of things. So one of the good things about Addicts Anonymous is I love hearing from you guys. I want to hear what you guys want to do, and then we do it. So much of the stuff was not my idea. Like the couples meeting, that's not my idea. That was someone that gave me the idea, and I'm trying to do it for them now. So. We got a lot of good stuff in the works, and the reason is we got a lot of good people in the group. That's true. I mean, I think from an outsider's perspective, of course, because this started as your baby, and you invited me in open arms, um, I think you have become very, very much so blessed in a way with the people that you've received. And I don't mean that in like a religious term. I just mean that as a generic that's that's a blessing in disguise um now people, you guys are you're all a blessing in disguise absolutely for sure and all the people that i've met so far even the ones that i've had small disagreements with i'm so happy i met them just because every day that i join a meeting even if i'm not talking i'm learning something and that's cool like that's the biggest part of my recovery right now, I need to learn as much about this monster that we're all fighting together because addiction itself, that's that's the beast we need to defeat. And we, we have the start of one of the best armies possible. I think so. Um, now, as far as the groups, we do them every night on Zoom. Um, we're working on the permanent link right now, right? Yeah, that's something that's in the works. I just, uh, I kid around. I say I'm like an old man with this stuff. I got to learn it slowly, but I'm going to try and make it where it's the same link. Yeah. Um, but right now, we're posting the link in the Facebook group every day. Every day. Yeah. Yep. yep. Events tab. And if you have a hard time finding it, don't hesitate to just ask one of us ridiculous people to <laughs> point out where the link is because we have a huge group of people right now that are more than willing to help you. And yeah, it's been great. It has. And to kind of land it, it, it's all thanks to you, dude. And I appreciate every stitch of work you put in, every amount of thought process that went into this. And hell, I'm even super thankful that you got my anxious ass back on a podcast. Yeah, that's good. I mean, anybody that wants to reach out to me that has any ideas that wants to kind of start something, I mean, I'll, I'll let them do it. They can use the name. As, the, the one thing that I tell people that might sound to the old timers like, what are you talking about, is you can skip to step 12 at any time. If you're on step four, you can skip to step 12 today. If you're on step one, you can skip to step 12 today. And I can keep going on with that. The reason is, I believe that step one and step 12 tie into each other because we want to say that from now on, we kind of want to live a new life. 
and we want to be in a better mood. And we yeah. admit that our lives are unmanageable. We can't control our addiction. And by helping other people, it helps us control our addiction for some reason. These guys in Alcoholics Anonymous learned this in 1939, that talking to other alcoholics, getting involved is a good thing. So step 12 makes you get involved, you help people, you do anything you can to help a fellow sufferer. That puts you in a good mood, and you can kind of start step one, step two, step three, all based on your foundation of step 12. So step 12 is something that I say at any given time you can skip to and carry this message to an addict that is still suffering. Um, so I say that to anyone. That's the one thing in our group that I believe is great. Um, our group slogan, I think I'm working on it right now. I think it's going to be by caring for others, I care for myself. So I think that's a good thing to uh, describe our group. You know, I see a lot of people asking for help and they get 20 responses within an hour, two hours. Yep. Yeah, we're definitely not shy about jumping on the bandwagon of trying to help someone in need. That's for sure. And right now we don't have any in-person meetings, but there's one in-person meeting that's actually in the works of being started in Kenya. Correct? Yes. Very awesome. They are They are going to try. Um, they're going to be the first, I don't want to say test group, but I guess that's the only way to describe it because we're going to give them access to a book um, for Addicts Anonymous that really no one else has yet. We're going to get them a program written in there for in-person meetings. I'm going to eventually <clears throat> try to send them a welcome kit and within the welcome kit i'm going to try and include our wristbands a couple chips and stuff like that so they can give it out to the other alcoholics and drug users and he says my buddy jacob he says and a shout out to jacob he says that he has about 10 people that he might be able to get at this first in-person group that's amazing so hard to support him. that's amazing like literally the world of social media as as awful as it can be with all the negativity and the trolling and things like that, the fact that it helps us to reach people is it makes up for so much because there these people that are in Africa right now, they may not have been able to find someone so willing to help them start a recovery group, but they come across you and now they're going to start an in person like it's huge and. Yeah. I can't wait to see where all this goes. I really can't wait to see where this is going to be in a year. I mean, five years from now. I mean, even 10 years from now. It's going to be a fun ride. I, I, I don't want to say fun, but it's going to be something where <clears throat> we create whatever people need to stay sober. Because there's just so many things that if you want to get creative, you can do. You know what I mean? Like you could start a meeting within our umbrella of meetings for any type of addiction. You know, this is for everybody, but you can also do some things where you separate, like I said, the women's meeting and a men's meeting. That's OK. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but we're going to do uh, other than that, meetings are going to be open to everyone. That's going to be the big difference with us. Yep. And if this is your first time hearing about this group, make sure you come to our Facebook group, Addicts Anonymous. You'll see us posting all types of crazy stuff. I'll actually put the link for the group in the bot or in the description of this podcast. If you are a random passerby, uh, we're down to talk to whoever. We're down to help whoever. And big thing, 
um, that hasn't been mentioned yet that I just realized, Jim. We forgot to mention that you don't have to be in recovery to be in our group. That's a, that's. Thank you for bringing that up. I completely spaced. <laughs> so with our group, um, the way I describe us is this is a group for addicts by addicts. So um, one of the things I also found at the other 12-step meetings, once again, I owe my life to these guys. I love these meetings, but there's a lot of things I didn't like. Um, one of the things was, oh, I apologize. I just lost train of thought. It's okay. So we were talking about how we are including active addicts oh, into that's the group. Right. Yeah. One of the things they always said, the newcomers are the most important people. They always said that. But they never enforced it, so to speak, because I, I saw a lot of newcomers that would stay in the corner and they were too shy to ask anyone for help. And I, I know for some reason there's like, I don't, I don't know, for some reason the sponsors don't really go up to these people. And a lot of times these people just don't feel welcome. Yeah. So this group for addicts, by addicts, and if you happen to be high right now, that's okay. We're not saying it's okay to use. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is if I'm meeting you while you're high, you went out of your way to find us. You went into the internet. You went and most likely searched, and you found an online Zoom meeting that is based on recovery. You are wanting to get better. You are welcome. Anyone that needs the support to get better, whether they are currently using or not, come talk to us. Hopefully, we can get you to stop. But in the meantime, hopefully, we can try to minimize any type of harm you're doing to yourself. Exactly. And maybe, just maybe, we, we also have a virtual sponsorship program. So you reach out, say, Jim, I need some help. And possibly myself or other sponsors, we can have men and women on the list that can reach out to you and help. So you're never alone, whether you're using or not. And I can't emphasize that enough. Exactly. And even. Even if you don't want to sponsor, like the big thing is come in and talk to us if you feel the need, because we're open to anyone. And, you know, like I, yeah, I'm so happy to be quiet. You can just come to a meeting and not say anything. Absolutely. I, I do that most every night. Well, almost every night. Like, let's be real. I'm a busy dude. I have three kids running around my house at most times and I sit and listen and I feel that's when I absorb the most to just to be honest. But when I'm having a rough day, these people have welcomed me in open arms to hear my, I, for lack of a better term, to hear my bitchings, you know? So don't ever feel like you're going to be listened to as, Oh man, this person's complaining again, because that's what they're, that's what we're there for. Yep, and especially the newcomer, tell us what your problem is, because you need the um, the help of us. Maybe you don't need it, but I think you ought to take a look at what we have to offer. Agreed. That's one, that's one of the things that is a trick in the big book, is they use the words you ought to, because what they found is if you tell addicts you should or you have to, we're less likely to do it. We don't like being told what to do. For sure. So that's what we put in you ought to, because it kind of leaves it up to us. You know what? You ought to do it. You don't want to. Don't. I think it might help you, though. Agreed. And I, I want to thank you again, Jim, for this interview today and for sharing your incredible story. I mean, to hear where you came from to where you are today is just nothing short of inspiring. 
And I look forward to seeing you in many more meetings to come. I'm going to post the permalink in the bio of this podcast once we get the permanent link set. And at the very least, we're putting the Facebook group in so you can pick up the links to whatever meetings you want to show up to. Do you have anything else that you want to state before we wrap up here today, sir? No, I think um, there's two things I want to leave you with. Okay. And they're quotes. They're great quotes. So when you're in a tough time, there's a great quote by a man named Alan Watts. And he says, you're under no obligation to be who you were five minutes ago. Just remember that. At any point in your day, you can start over. And part of that is a saying that I came up with, which is relax, don't relax. I like that. Just remember that stuff. You know what? I don't have to be who I was five minutes ago. I can just start right now fresh. And what I need to do is I need to relax and don't relax. You know what I mean? I love that. Don't touch any drugs and you'll be good to go. I love that, dude. And if not, we're here for you. If something happens, we're still here to help you through your journey. Amen. So thank you again, man. It's been a pleasure. No problem. And I can't wait to have more conversations like this going forward. Sounds awesome, man. I appreciate you having me. All right. Anytime, literally. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And hopefully next time, you know what? Let's put the shoe on the other foot for the next one. We'll get you to interview me. How's that feel? Sounds good. All right, man. I'll talk to you in a few then. All right, bye.